This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your computer makes thousands of connections every day, just like the one it's making now to deliver you your audio content. Why not unlock some little connections of your own? Pick up a box of Cadbury Heroes today, stay at home and share them with your family or friends. Sometimes it's the little things that bring us together. First up, a word from our sponsors. Here's something you'll like, Brooksy. Total Film Magazine. Oh, I'm listening. Right, I know you like films. I know that you can read. (laughs) Yes, I can. And what I enjoy about Total Film is it's like a smarter movie mag. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it just uh, offers me a bit more insight. It's quite sort of authoritative. It tells you kind of what's going on right now rather than having to wait for things to kind of come out. Everything you want, really. So all the up-to-date movie news, like what's in production... Um, who's just pulled out? Oh, I like it when it's sort of actor <laughs> actor pulls out, director gets off. sacked, yeah, that kind yeah. of stuff. I enjoy yeah. all of like those on-set pictures, first looks, interviews with uh, big stars, unbiased reviews of every new film released. Oh, so not the usual like paid for not, or not the usual got to keep in with this like production company. Pieces. Yeah, okay, yeah, nice. which, which I like. And then my favourite bit, just loads of film trivia for the pub quiz. Yeah. Perfect yeah. for the pub quiz. Yeah, make yourself sound knowledgeable at minimal cost. Yeah, and you don't have to watch the films. I mean, I quite <laughs> like that bit, but you don't have to. And you can get all of this delivered straight to your door every single month. Not only that, you can save 80% off your first five issues with this special science-ish offer. So issues are normally four ninety nine each. Not to you, less than a pound. Just go to myfavouritemagazines.co.uk forward slash science-ish. I like being able to learn about just anything that interests me without anyone telling me what I have to learn or when I have to learn it. And that's why I like The Great Courses Plus, because it gives me unlimited access to thousands of lectures in like any category from the world's top experts. And you get the flexibility to watch the lectures or stream the audio with The Great Courses Plus app. So even if I'm, you know, like cycling to work or something, I can just listen to it like it's a podcast. So you shouldn't be watching it while you're cycling, obviously. I think that would be ill-advised. Right. Although some of the content is that good that you might want to. That's weird, isn't it? I've often sort of been in the middle of videos and thought, no, I've got to go and do something else. And I thought I could be listening to this if this was a podcast, but but that's it. I've got to walk away from it. Not with the Great Courses Plus app, you don't. Nice. The course that I've been enjoying recently is called Brain Myths Exploded. This is hosted by a guy called Dr. Viscontis, who explores some of the most fundamental myths and mysteries about the human brain. So 
obviously he talks about consciousness. He talks a bit about whether animals are as conscious as humans, which is, right. of course, our favourite yeah, topic yeah, of conversation. Yeah. Talks about whether smartphones are affecting our intelligence. It's really good. So check out Brain Myths Exploded. I feel like our listeners are going to really enjoy The Great Courses Plus. Um, and for a limited time only, we're giving our science-ish listeners a special free month of unlimited access to all of The Great Courses Plus all lectures. All of them? All of them. I mean, is this like... It's not just science stuff, is it? It's no, 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 this is, this is anything. This is like, I'll tell you what, I would like to learn French. You can. Or... I bet you wish you were better at pool. I beat you the other day. Yes, you did. They actually don't have anything from any pool hustlers. Not that can help you. To get this special free month, uh, just sign up through our URL, which is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash science. And then just download the Great Courses Plus app. So that's thegreatcoursesplus.com forward slash science. <laughs> It's an important and popular fact that things are not always what they seem. Uh, time, it's an illusion. Lunchtime, doubly so. And eat those peanuts because you'll need salt. But what is going on at all? Um, people of Earth, this is prosthetic Vogon Jelts of the Galactic Hyperspace Planning Council. As you are probably aware, plans for the development of the outlying regions of the galaxy involve the building of the hyperspace express route through your star system. And your planet is one of those scheduled for demolition. Shouldn't we lie down or put paper bag over heads or something? Oh, if you'd like. Will it help? Not at all. Not at all. Not at all. Voila! Earthman, you must realise that the planet you lived on was commissioned, paid for, and run by mice. It's very commonly said that the root of most human unhappiness is the sense that one's life has no meaning. These are pictures of equations. I've been, for the last 15 years, trying to answer the kinds of questions that my colleagues here have been raising. When you have a hammer, then everything looks like an anvil. When you have a computer, then everything looks like a computation. When you then try to understand these pictures, you find out that buried in them are computer codes, just like the type that you find in a browser when you go surf the web. I think it's very fascinating to think of what this idea itself means, or what it is intended when it's said that uh, life has to have a purpose. The answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything is 42. Once you had a general purpose machine, the idea that maybe all of the universe and the physics that surrounds us is also being computed doesn't seem far-fetched. I think I'm a sofa. I know how you feel. Hello and welcome to Science-ish. I'm Rick Edwards, joined as ever by Dr. Michael Brooks. Hello. Hello. Tell me, how does the show work, Michael? Well, what we do is we take a piece of popular fiction... Oh, yeah. ...and we kind of investigate one big scientific question that it raises. I'm excited already. Yeah. It's your turn in charge, Brooksy. What are we going to be looking at? We are going to be looking at the book, and I mean the book, not the terrible film, uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. That's a good one. I also didn't mind the film that much. Really? Sorry, I didn't. I thought it was fine. 
Yeah. Um, do you want to do a plot rundown? Very simply. I mean, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy itself is a, a kind of electronic book before there was any such thing as an electronic book. And it, that is literally, you know, like a Wikipedia for the whole galaxy. You know, it tells you everything you need to know. Uh, but the book is actually about an English guy called Arthur Dent who discovers that uh, there's a whole load of aliens out there and there's one living on Earth with him, a friend of his called Ford Prefect. And they end up, um, the Earth's being gets demolished and they go on these sort of intergalactic adventures but the thing at the center of it and the thing actually inspired it uh, is the idea that the earth is not just a planet but a computer and it's actually computing the question that really will give us an understanding of the meaning of life so what is our big question going to be then is the universe actually a massive computer i like this it's big Uh, i'm I'm already excited this is a big episode (laughs) And have we tracked down an absolute legend to answer our question? Yes, we have. We've got a big gun. Uh, Professor Jürgen Schmidhuber. He's at the University of Lugano. And his algorithms actually at the basis of a lot of things inside your smartphone. Uh, Facebook, Google, Siri, Amazon Alexa, they all use his work. Really? So, so he knows what he's talking about when it comes oh, to computing. So he must be wedged up to the <laughs> max. <laughs> Before the 20th century, most physicists thought about physics in terms of real numbers and the continuum, where you have uncountably many real numbers that together form this continuum and um, that uh, any detail of the universe can be further divided into, into even smaller parts. In the new century, around 1900, these new ideas emerged that everything is quantized and mostly due to Planck. The generally accepted premise in physics now is that there's something like a minimal length, the Planck length, and there's something like a minimal time, the Planck time. And in that sense, the universe is discrete. And maybe the entire history of the universe is computable by a short program. The first guy who published a scientific paper about that was uh, in 1967, Konrad Zuse, the same guy who built the first working uh, program-controlled computer between 1935 and 1941. And some people say when you have a hammer, then everything looks like an anvil. And when you have a computer, then everything looks like a computation. And in his case, that certainly was true. Once you had a general-purpose machine, um, the idea that maybe all of the universe and the physics that surrounds us is also being computed in a deterministic way that you can replicate on a laptop in principle. This idea doesn't seem far-fetched. And the interesting thing is there is no physical evidence whatsoever against this possibility. So Professor Jürgen's touching there on the history of this 
idea. Give me a bit more, Brooksy. Where did this talk of a computational universe come from? So you start with this thing called a cellular automaton. Ah, <laughs> now then. You know I know Which about this. I know you know about, and I kind of hesitate to go there. <laughs> but let, let's just get through this quickly All without right, you right. telling me about how you built your own cellular automaton. It was uh, a great afternoon. <sighs> right. So in the late 1940s, early 1950s, you've got John von Neumann, uh, Stanislaw Ulam. Uh, they're basically sort of saying, well, you know, isn't it interesting to kind of almost divide stuff up into pixels and then apply a few rules. So you have all these pixels next to each other and you say, okay, if the pixel on the right is black, then you turn black. If the two pixels underneath you are white, then you go white. And you just like develop some rules. And then you just let this thing play out. And what happens is you get these amazing sort of patterns emerge. And you also get things emerge which are almost like organisms sort of reproducing. So uh, famously in the 1970s, a guy called John Conway produced something called The Game of Life where he applied these basic simple rules to his cellular automata and he got you know what looked like you know organisms effectively giving birth to you know other organisms and and these children would move off and have their own children what it looks like is you're getting things that are uh, looking complex and almost like biology and ev- evolution and survival of the fittest effectively. And you can apply all these rules and just this simple algorithm, these, these really simple ways of, of deciding what's going to happen in this world that you've created, uh, produce this enormous rich complexity. So that was the kind of basis for all of this. So with a cellular automaton, we're talking about a kind of discontinuous, pixelated space and time. But that's not what it feels like, is it? It feels continuous to me. But it is, you know, what we think is actually happening. You know, you sort of zoom in on the universe and you see it as being granular. We kind of know from examining the laws of physics and quantum physics in particular that actually you can have this smallest possible length, which is called the Planck length, uh, which is actually 1.6 times 10 to the minus 35 metres. And then you can define the Planck time, which is the time it takes for a photon to cross the Planck length at the speed of light. And that gives you 5.3 times 10 to the minus 44 seconds. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you've got these sort of basic units of space and time. And uh, everything in quantum physics basically indicates to us that these are the kind of pixels of the universe, if you like. This is the fundamental unit from which you know we get everything that, that, that we see on the large scale. Many millions of years ago, a race of hyper-intelligent, pan-dimensional beings got so fed up with the constant bickering about the meaning of life that they commissioned two of their brightest and best to design and build a stupendous supercomputer to calculate the answer to life, the universe, and everything. Oh, Deep Thought, we want you to tell us the answer. The answer to what? The answer to life, the universe, everything. We'd really like an answer. Something simple. Hmm, You have to think about that. Return to this place in exactly seven and a half million years. So the idea is then that the universe actually could be just a giant cellular automaton. Yeah, so you apply these rules, or, or some rules, you have to work out what those rules are, to a very simple system of, of pixels made up of, you know, effectively Planck lengths and Planck times or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you can get this thing where information in, in, in this computation becomes the thing that creates 
all of the stuff. So John Wheeler coined it the term um, it from bits. So you get it, the universe, from bits, which is binary digits. He must have been pleased when he came up with it from bits. <laughs> he's the <laughs> man who coined the term black hole, I think. So, he, you know, he really, oh, he's really had a way with words. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you had people like Ed Fredkin, this incredible guy who trained as a fighter pilot. He got a job at MIT after that. Um, he was actually thrown out of his job lecturing when they found out he didn't have a university degree. <laughs> So ultimate blacker. <laughs> he worked for the Air Force on these uh, incredible projects where he became a multimillionaire. So he bought himself a Caribbean island because he saw one for sale in the classifieds. <laughs> and he was just like, oh, I'll have that. And he just sort of developed this whole thing um, about, you know, okay, maybe all of this stuff, all the matter, uh, all the forces can actually come from information theory. And um, to the point where he thinks, you know, matter and energy are just illusions and all there is is information, digital information. Is he claiming then that every physical event is actually just a computation? Because I just feel like that might be semantics, just redefining what you're going to say a physical process is. I can see why you think that's semantics, but actually you never get information that's just sitting there on its own. It's always embedded in the physical universe, whether it's ink on paper or whether it's electrons on your on your screen. So, so it's not that hard to kind of say, OK, well, maybe the computation itself is what's sort of giving rise to this physicality. Um, so but the physicality still exists. But maybe it wouldn't exist without the computation. I know it's big. uh, I said it was big. Yeah, no, it is big. I'm just taking a moment. So ultimately, if we're saying that the universe is just computations, then the big question is, what's the code that's running it, isn't it? Yeah, and that's exactly what Professor Schmidhuber is trying to find out. Most kids find it easier than adults to connect to the idea that the entire universe is being computed by one finite program because they have experience with video games. And what is a video game? Basically, it's residing in this code, the binary code on your laptop, and uh, the code is made such that you have an interface with the guy who is playing the video game and you have nice computer graphics which are being computed by by little sub-programs and they make you feel as if you're part of the scenery as you're walking through your ego shooter game, for example. And uh, people who know that, uh, they find it not so difficult to generalize and say, yeah, maybe all of that... Um, environment of our environment is actually um, just a simulation like that. In 1997, I wrote a paper which was called A Computer Scientist's View of Life, the Universe and Everything. I basically just wrote down some sort of master algorithm which um, computes not only our particular universe, but also all the other possible universes with maybe different physical laws, different initialization conditions, and so on. Everything that is computable. And in many ways, that's actually an old hat. It's known as the dovetailer. What is happening there, you have a master program, and then it lists systematically all possible programs. For example, if you have a computer where the programs are strings of 
zeros and ones, bit strings, then you uh, can list all these bit strings, you can list all these possible programs, and you run them all. And some of these programs compute outputs. And some of these outputs are indeed histories of video games. And some of these are actually histories of video games that look a lot like our universe so far. And some of them look exactly like this universe so far. So if you were a great programmer, a godlike great program of all possible universes, all logically possible universes, not just ours, but all of them, then you should use that particular master algorithm, the good way of allocating runtime to all these different processes, such that everything comes out as quickly as possible, as efficiently as possible. Now, you can become a great programmer today because I wrote down this very simple algorithm and it's just a few lines of code and you can write it down today on your laptop and uh, it's going to run and it's going to start computing beginnings of all kinds of different universes. This is um, uncomfortable for me to admit, but I am so far out of my depth there. <laughs> I don't know what he's talking about. Help me. What is this algorithm doing? Basically, it can't be that simple. Or can it? Well, it, of course it's not simple, but... A couple it, of lines of code. <laughs> well, it's actually ten lines of code. Uh, is that it? Yeah, yeah. So he basically starts from Everett's Many Worlds theory, which is an interpretation of quantum theory, which yeah. takes all the possible spaces of any kind of quantum event. Infinite you, Hilbert space. Yeah, infinite Hilbert space. You're on the right track there. Uh -huh. And just kind of turns that into a generalized computation. So you get lots of different things happening in in many worlds like you have all these different universes like a so it's a classical cellular automaton modeling not just our universe but all, all possible, possible universes. universes yeah so if i'm following fairly big if um <laughs> this cellular automaton generating our universe will be completely deterministic so how do you marry that with the quantum effects that we observe uh, that's a very good question. So, um, yes, <laughs> if you want to simulate a universe that has quantum mechanics in it, then you kind of need to have that simulation running on a quantum computer. So uh, a lot of people would say, actually, we need um, quantum cellular automaton. Are our observations and experiments uh, in the universe consistent with the idea that the universe might be a quantum cellular automaton? Yeah, it could be. I mean, you, you, they are consistent with that idea. And it kind of has to be because we know that we need to have this quantum of space, you know, the, the Planck length, mm -hmm. uh, and, and we have the Planck time. So we have regression of the universe. And we have stuff within the universe which effectively does computation. So whatever you look at, um, you know, electrons and atoms and whatever else, you can see them as being computers and doing computations. So there's a guy called Seth Lloyd who works at MIT, and uh, he works on developing quantum computers. So that's you know using atoms and electrons to store bits of information mm -hmm. and do calculations with them. And then he basically said, well, if you can take an atom and store information on it and do quantum computations, then maybe you scale that up and you say, well, that's what all of stuff is doing, is actually just doing computations. So he kind of worked out that the universe has a computational capacity. You know, a single atom can carry basically 20 binary digits when you work it out. 
And when you have two atoms, each carrying all these digits, colliding, the outcome of that collision, which you know we'd call physics or chemistry, mm-hmm. you can also just call it computation. So Seth Lloyd's kind of doing the calculations, and he says he reckons that since the beginning of time, the universe has performed about 10 to the 122 operations, computing operations, on 10 to the 92 binary digits. So, so he says when you look at the sort of quantum capacity, if you like, the universe is doing computations. It is being a computer. And you can even put a number on the kind of... on the, on the amount of computation it's done so far. Deep thoughts. Do you have an a- answer for you? Yes, but you're not going to like it. It doesn't matter. We must know it. All right. The answer to the ultimate question of life the universe and everything is forty two. Yes, yes, I thought it over quite thoroughly. It is, it's forty two. It would have been simpler, of course, to have known what the actual question was. That's not a question. Only when you know the question will you know what the answer means. Give us the ultimate question then. I can't. But there is one who can. A computer that will calculate the ultimate question. A computer of such infinite complexity that life itself will form part of its operational matrix. And you yourselves shall take on new, more primitive forms and go down into the computer to navigate its 10 million year program. I shall design this computer for you and it shall be called... So I suppose that's interesting and I kind of follow that the universe is doing almost countless quantum calculations... But what does it tell us? How is it useful? Does it does it give us any information about the universe and why it behaves the way it does? So Seth Lloyd would say, yes, I mean, it answers this really essential question that humans have always asked. It's like they look out into the universe and say it's incredibly complex, mm-hmm. incredibly varied. You know, how could such a thing have come about? And Seth Lloyd's answer is actually through very simple rules you know the, the the quantum rules of computation effectively are incredibly simple and they would come you know from interactions of 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 quantum things and and actually come from the uncertainty principle so you get this kind of random uh assignment of of you know interactions between particles things just happen at random a bit like monkeys just typing on a typewriter at random mm-hmm. and eventually you know you can imagine that a monkey would type by accident, a very simple line of programming code or something. And he's what he's suggesting is that actually uh, the universe's sort of quantum fluctuations that come from the uncertainty principle... They're the monkeys. They're the monkeys. And they're going to eventually create laws of physics that, that produce very simple lines of code for the, for the computer, but that go on to then produce this incredibly complex and rich and varied universe that we live in. It is odd to think that simple laws of physics and simple initial conditions would give rise to a universe that's so 
complex, though, isn't it? Like, it, sort of instinctively, you just assume that you get something simple out of it. Well, this is the whole problem with the human brain is that we really struggle to see how all mm. this complexity emerges from from simple things. But you know, what's what's really interesting is that if you then say it all comes from these random quantum fluctuations, it's like you know, we are this collection of, you know, we're made up of atoms and, you know, they're seeded by this, you know, initial randomness. What does it mean for I, us? I know where this is going. I hate it and I know exactly you where know it's where going. You know where it's going. <laughs> say it. You're, yes, you're going to say to me, hmm, if we're just random quantum fluctuations, do we have any free will? <laughs> and then I'm going to have a crisis again. <laughs> well, funnily enough, we asked Professor Schmidhuber about this. Good, good. Free will is overrated. Some people think that in a deterministic universe, there is no free will because everything is preordained by the initial program and it runs it. It runs the entire history of the universe. And as this history is unfolding, maybe there's an evolution of animals and then humans and more complicated decision makers. And they think about their future and they try to uh, predict their future and they try to execute action sequences that lead to a lot of predicted reward, which is what most people do. And there they seem to have free will because they weigh the options and maybe it's cheaper to execute this action sequence here rather than this one here. Now to me, as the god of this universe that I programmed, I can't exactly repeat uh, the entire evolution of these little societies consisting of these little agents with their little artificial brains trying to learn to predict the future and to optimize the actions. And, and these little guys, they act as if they are thinking about their problems and as if they are choosing their actions to become more successful. And in many ways, they just exhibit what we know as free will. But it's totally deterministic free will because the entire universe is computed according to a deterministic program. And I can repeat the entire history again by just restarting the program. Nevertheless, evolution in this universe led to these little guys that have the property that they they do this planning and predict based on predictions. And it's just a, a way of having success in this universe. And those who do that, they are more successful and have more offspring than those who don't. And in that sense, you see that free will, as you know it, is totally compatible with the idea of a deterministic computation of the entire universe of which you, as a limited tiny decision maker, see just a little tiny part. Come on. I mean, you don't really think you have free will, do you? Well, you do have kind of a free will in that, you, you know... Sort you, of getting hammered out of me. Yeah, <laughs> you're welcome. By doing this podcast. <laughs> so, I mean, obviously, you know, your brain gives you the illusion of control, but your genes are basically telling you to survive, and, and, yeah. your, and, and your brain is very, very good at planning ahead uh, in a way that makes you think, well, I'm going to make this decision. 
Uh, but actually, you make that decision for your own long-term benefit. Mm-hmm. And your long-term benefit is actually the benefit of your genes, the whole sort of selfish gene idea that mm-hmm. they want to propagate into the next generation. They want you to produce a little Rick yeah. or, or something similar. As long as they're in it, they don't mind. And it's not just, just uh, Professor Schmidhuber who says this. So a guy called Stephen Wolfram, who's just one of the absolute dons of the cellular automata, he says that um, yeah, it's basically... Uh, what he calls computational irreducibility. So free will is an illusion that stems from the fact that you can't trace the causes of your decisions. Basically, your brain can only go back so far and say, well, of course, you know, I decided to go to Nando's because I like Nando's. It was my choice. I could have gone to Pizza Express. And actually, you know, there are reasons why you made that choice because of things that your brain prefers you to have or, or your genes prefer you to have in your body, ultimately, when you trace it all the way back. And if you were able to see the whole trace back of like the computational complexity that arises from those simple rules, then you would say, oh, yeah, I don't really have free will. This is like super determinism, isn't it? Effectively, yeah. This is saying that everything is playing out exactly as it was always going to play out, given the initial conditions and rules of this universe. Yeah. So if we... This is the thing that absolutely blows my mind. What Professor Jürgen is saying is that if he just reset it, started it again with the same initial conditions, we would end up here. So I would be saying these words again in exactly this order. <laughs> and then he could just reset it and you could just have a constant loop of it. Kind of, yeah. I mean, you can have... That a, is what he's saying. You can have a bit of chaos in there and he doesn't really believe in the, the kind of quantum aspect of it. So I would say if you reset it, actually you'd, ha- you'd have different random fluctuations at the start. So you could change the initial conditions you know, by restarting it. Because you've got these, I, I would argue, random quantum random fluctuations that come from uncertainty would slightly change things. So it wouldn't uh, play out the same every right. single time. But then you have to try and ascertain what's the end goal. If I am a valuable cog in this universe's uh, Big computation... If. Big if. Yeah, okay. Uh, but if I am, what am I doing it for? <laughs> So you're not doing it for anything. You're, I mean, you're effectively well, yeah, like... Obviously, I've got no free will. And yeah, just, so you're just like a transistor in the, in the PC kind of thing. Yeah, but what is the PC trying to do? Well, this is what physics is trying to work out, isn't it? I mean, this is what we're all about trying to understand. What's the universe for? Is, is, it, is, it, is its goal actually to create conscious beings that then discover what the universe is all about? So Carl Sagan once mm. said, we are a way for the universe to know itself. And that we are the first yeah, sort of thing yeah. that's created, that's conscious and has the facility to work out what the universe is for. So it's like the universe is on this massive sort of self-analytical project. What happens if at some point the universe comes up with an answer? Is that it done? <laughs> and then, then a big thing appears and it says level two. <laughs> oh, nightmare. <laughs> so it's all quite reminiscent of the Nick Bostrom simulation argument, isn't it? That does sort of crop up in your mind, doesn't it? It's like, what are we for? If this is all just a computation and a simulation like a video game, like Mm. Professor Jürgen said, then maybe we are just there for entertainment or something. And now we've figured it out. They're like, oh, I've played this game to death. I'm not coming out of this episode feeling particularly good about myself or our place in the universe, I have to say. I don't find it much solace that I might be a transistor in a massive computer (laughs) that's doing something that I don't understand. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? 
Well, yeah, I mean, you could see yourself as a little bit more active than this. So, so Seth Lloyd had this friend called Heinz Pagels who died in a climbing accident. You know, obviously he was extremely upset and went through a period of grief. And in the end, he said, you know, we've not entirely lost him. While he lived, Heinz programmed his own piece of the universe and the resulting computation unfolds in us and around us. So it's a kind of pseudo-religious kind of spiritual mm. view on the universe. So, so you're seeing it as a negative thing because you don't want to just be a functional piece of hardware mm-hmm. and actually you know maybe you could sort of take joy in being part of the whole universal cosmic computation you're so negative sorry as you know we've spent a lot of time on your planet looking for this ultimate question only to have it blow up in our faces literally which is why you're here we've been offered a lucrative contract to do several 5d tv chat shows right but here's the point we must have product we need the ultimate question Or at least one that sounds ultimate. Of course. Yes, we've rebuilt the planet, and now all we need is the missing piece of the puzzle. Hmm. Which happens to be your brain. Right. Or tea. Yeah, sorry, did did you just say you'd need my brain? Yes, to complete the program. (laughs) Okay, but you can't you can't have my brain. I'm I'm using it. Hardly. (laughs) Hardly. Cheeky. Cheeky. Cheeky mouse. So, quick rundown. Uh, is the universe a massive computer? What's your feeling? My, my feeling is that it's the best explanation I've ever come across. Really? Yeah. For why it exists at all. But it doesn't explain why it exists. Well, somebody's running a computation. You know I believe in the simulation argument. Mm. You know I believe that actually we are just part of some kind of cosmic, multidimensional teenager's bedroom project. Mm. I'm okay with that. I don't think I am. Don't delete me. Delete him. Science-ish is a Radio Wolfgang production presented by me, Rick Edwards, and Dr Michael Brooks. The producers were Cormac McAuliffe and Ivor Slayer-Manley. Special thanks to Professor Jürgen Schmidhuber. If you like the show, please do subscribe and rate wherever you listen to your podcast. It does really help. Thank you. You can also find us on Twitter at science underscore ish. Have we tracked down an absolute legend to answer this question for us? Well, as per, yes, we have. Um, We've got Professor Jürgen Schmidhuber of the University of Lugano. (laughs) I feel like if Professor Jürgen's listening, he's going to think, why is he butchering my name? Your computer makes thousands of connections every day, just like the one it's making now to deliver you your audio content. Why not unlock some little connections of your own? Pick up a box of Cadbury Heroes today, stay at home and share them with your family or friends. Sometimes it's the little things that bring us together. 